Hello and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the scandalous and often uh, salacious side of American and international history. Uh, we are here kicking off our last month of the year, our December episodes. We're going to do um, some fun stuff this uh, month, but we're starting with something serious and historical. Um, but before we do that, we should introduce ourselves. As always, I'm Becca. And I'm Rebecca. And together and- we're... The Rebecca's. (laughs) Ah, good times, good times. Um, Hi, welcome to all of our listeners. Uh, Thank you guys so much uh, for just getting us through another year. If you had asked me at the beginning of 2020 if we were going to do a podcast and one that would last for two calendar years, I would not have believed it. And yet here we are. So thank you to all of our wonderful listeners who have uh, kept us going. People have been sending us really wonderful ideas and just wonderful comments. And thank you so much. Uh, We're just so appreciative to everybody who's reached out and said that they listen to the podcast, including many of our fellow guides. Uh, I want to shout out Stephen and Amelia, who've become very loyal uh, listeners and supporters. And uh, we just really, really appreciate it. Uh, And a special thank you to our patrons who are awesome and amazing and have truly kept us going. There's no way we could um, have the time to do this podcast and keep it going if it wasn't for our patrons. So uh, if you're not a patron, it makes a wonderful holiday gift. You can gift this patronship to your favorite history-loving family member. Or if you love history and you're not so sure if your family does, this is a great way to get them into it. Tell them there's a lot of adultery and murder on this podcast and we make it fun. We do make it a lot of fun. Yes, yes. And then, of Um, course, uh, if you're in the D.C. area, we are running our holiday tours. We're going to be kicking off our holiday lights tour um, next week. So next week will be the first full week in December after uh, the tree lighting for the National Christmas Tree is done. If you've not listened to our holiday episode from last year, it's all about Christmas at the White House and the National Christmas Tree. It's a really fun episode. Um, But we'll be running our holiday lights tour um, basically through December. So it's a chance to really enjoy downtown D.C. We're going to share a lot of our favorite places for holiday frivolity and it's just a great picture or a great tour to get pictures and video on. So uh, if you're in town or coming into town, check out our holiday light tours, plus all of our other great tours at dcbyfoot.com. Yes, um, we, it's very exciting. Uh, Christmas time is lovely. It's a little bit of chill in the air and there's all kinds of holiday goodies happening uh, in the DC area. And our other episode in December will be a little bit more light and fluffy and happy, but this one, we're going to do something a little serious. Um, this is this year, 2021, is the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the United States entrance into the Second World War. And so I thought we should talk about that. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, this is not only is this the anniversary, it's the 80th, which is a big one. And it's probably I would imagine one of the last big anniversaries we're going to have where there are survivors. There can't be too many more of them. You know, it's 80 years is a long time. And if you were serving, you were at least 18, presumably. So you're uh, closing in on a hundred by this time. So this is a big one. Uh, And yeah. And I'll just jump in and say, if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in the commemoration of the 80th anniversary 
of the attack at Pearl Harbor, check out www.pearlharborevents.com. We'll also put that in our show notes. There's going to be a lot of virtual programming, a lot of great resources for educators. I know we have a lot of great teachers who listen to this podcast. So um, I think the National Park Service, the United States government has really acknowledged that this 80th anniversary is going to be a really pivotal one and probably one of the last ones where we will have survivors and veterans actively engage. In fact, they have um, a, a process right now to invite veterans and survivors to come and there's uh, funding being supported for that. So if you want to participate, especially virtually, check out pearlharborevents.com. There's going to be some really, really cool, interesting stuff going on uh, online that everybody can watch and participate in. And I know that's what I'm going to be doing. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let's, you ready? Let's jump into this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love this topic just because this obviously deeply relates to Washington, D.C., but it's getting us into a part of the country we've not super covered. We have not. Um, if we, it, it obviously is connected to D.C. being the political capital, but Pearl Harbor is in Hawaii, for those who don't know, um, which is, I think, probably no one. Uh, and every- in 1941, Hawaii is not a state yet. It is not a state. Yes, that's important to mention. Hawaii is a territory and not a state. Pearl Harbor is located on the island of Oahu, which is um, not the big island of Hawaii. Uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, Oahu, though, is where Honolulu is. So Pearl Harbor is just north and west of the capital, Honolulu. Uh, And it is a lovely harbor. The pictures are really very delightful and I wanted to walk through the pictures and be there because it looks very nice and very Hawaiian. Um, And there's a lot of background of this. As you may know, World War II is complicated. It's a shocker, I know. Uh, but World War II, so if you ask any American what, when we got in, when World War II started, they're going to tell you 1941 with Pearl Harbor, and they would be right, but that's not the beginning of World War II at all. World War II starts in 1939 in September. Uh, the Nazis invade Poland, and Britain and France are going to declare war, and then not a lot happens for a few months, about six months. There's kind of like, they just kind of sit around, they call it the Sitzkrieg rather than the Blitzkrieg. And then the Nazis sweep through most of Europe, take over France and a bunch of other places. And by the late spring, early summer of 1940, Britain stands alone. Uh, And the Battle of Britain, uh, sort of the famous air raids uh, start that summer, Churchill becomes prime minister. And when I say Britain standing alone, they obviously are not completely alone. They have their dominions at that time. But there's not a lot of help for them in Europe. And Churchill really wants help. He is begging. He starts begging. For he needs help. He's, it's, a, yes. it's a need. It's a need. It is. He's, they, he would particularly like what he really wants is for the United States to get involved and like support the British militarily. But that's obviously not going to happen at that time. Roosevelt is facing down an election in November of 1940. He is running for an unprecedented third term. Uh, And so he wants to kind of be cautious. Plus, Roosevelt kind of knows the United States isn't really ready for this war. And I want to just kind of pause on this because I feel like Roosevelt's state of mind is really important. And Roosevelt, I think, is a um, really a masterful politician. And I feel like this period, 18 months between the summer of 1940 and Pearl Harbor are really such a great example of his uh, political genius because Roosevelt knows 
how important this war is before probably anybody else, certainly most people in the United States. He knows that this is gonna define him. It's gonna define his legacy. And more important than that, it's gonna define the century that they're in, in so many important ways. And he knows that the United States needs to play a role. That's, I mean, the, we're the arsenal of democracy. We have to play a role in stopping the spread of fascism and repression. He knows this, but he also understands that the United States just isn't ready. We're just not there. And so he's gonna play this really wonderful tightrope act of giving support and money and aid and material to the British and trying to get the United States ready, but not pushing too hard. And so it's a really delicate needle and he threads it really well because he seems to understand sort of innately that the United States needs to be how hard to push, but not too hard. And it's this really great dance that he does. And he's also incredibly uh, savvy because I think he obviously knows, as you said, that we're going to enter this war at some point. And he wants to make sure that it's on our terms, that mm -hmm. we're coming from a place of strength. And he's mm -hmm. not interested in joining this war at any point where it seems like we're not going to come out victorious. So he's very, he is so smart in understanding too, that there's going to be, for lack of a better term, the right time. Mm -hmm. And we are not yet upon it. Uh, and there's a right time for getting public opinion. There's a right time for having our military drawn up to the levels it needs to be to have um, plans in place for getting the material that we're going to need and all these things that are going to be part of the war effort. And he really understands, like you said, because it is tied to his legacy, but also truly the role in which the United States is playing on the world stage, that there's no point in us getting into this too early and dragging out. Because when we right. get in, we're going to be in it to win it. Right. And so he's got to thread this needle with Churchill, who really does need a lot of help and yeah. is begging. <laughs> and he's got to like bring the country along with him. And it's this very, and I always think like of what a masterful strategy this is. And sometimes being political, like maneuvering in politics and being good at it is not about the big bombastic things. It's about this sort of subtle manipulation that goes on for months. And that's kind of what Roosevelt does. And there are a lot of people in the United States who are really opposed to getting involved in this war. And we talked about some of this when we did our Charles Lindbergh episode. Lindbergh heads the America Firsters. And go listen to the episode. It's really great. But there, some of the isolationism has a very racist tinge to it. And Lindbergh kind of heads up that effort. But there are also a lot of Americans who just feel like this is somebody else's deal, man. We've got our own problems. We're still in the Great Depression. Like America's got to figure out our own stuff before we can like intervene in these foreign wars. And so Roosevelt's kind of got to thread that needle and he kind of senses that the Americans well, don't want to get in too soon, but we also need to feel like we're right. We're not an aggressor in this conflict. We need to feel like we are, you know, the, the right is on our side and we're righteous in our sort of rage. And so he's going to just maneuver and push without pushing too hard. And it really is very masterful. I always like to point out, especially when we're talking about sort of this era with student groups, um, really point to his State of the Union address, January 1941. Mm -hmm. This is 11 months before Pearl Harbor happens. Mm -hmm. And yet he is essentially laying out what becomes a call to war. He lays out the very, the reality of what's happening around the world. He lays out 
really the imperfection of the Treaty of Versailles and sort of all the things about the First World War that people are understandably hesitant about. He addresses a lot of the the America first concerns, as it Mm -hmm. were. And then he basically says that there's going to come a time at some point soon. And he's guessing within this year, because this is the State of the Union for 1941, that we're going to need to make personal sacrifices. We're going to need to make national sacrifices. And we have to be ready for the inevitability of this war. Um, As much as Roosevelt is still trying to walk this tightrope, I mean, that State of the Union, which now is often referred to as the Four Freedoms speech, because he references the Four Freedoms, which are included today um, at the FDR Memorial on the title basin. And it's really, it's one of my favorite um, FDR speeches, of which there are many you can choose from. But I mostly am fascinated by it because politically it is so fascinating. It's like, okay, I won this election. So now I have four years and you know, because he had to be really careful leading up to the election. And now he's like, okay, guys, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to push, I'm not going to jump us in too soon, but I need everybody to get on board. Right. You need to like wrap your head around this, guys, because it's coming. And and he's really laying out, he's trying to get people to understand that there's a reason. This is not just warmongering. This is not just we're doing it because Europe wants us to. We're not doing it because Churchill's asking. We're doing it because it is right. We're doing it because it's about defending America and democracy. And he really starts laying out like, these other people out here are going to say this, this, and this, and that's their right. But this is actually what is right and moral. Yes. And so we'll put this in the show notes, but it's one of my favorite speeches. And it blows my mind because it's almost a year before Pearl Harbor ever happens. It just is amazing to me how he manages to hold this off for as long as he does. Like just, you know, hold Churchill off. And Churchill does get some relief in June of 1941. The Nazis are going to attack the Soviet Union, which was a terrible idea from the German perspective because they end up losing. But um, it is going to give Churchill some relief because now he suddenly has some uh, assistance uh, with the war. So he's got a second front. He's got some help, but he still wants the United States. Churchill really would like for the United States to be involved. So the Pacific Theater is not something that Churchill is particularly concerned with. Uh, It's not something that the East or the Western war, the European war is particularly concerned with. The Pacific theater is dominated by an aggressive Japan, very simply. Uh, Japan has been aggressive and in an aggressive posture for decades at this point. They've taken over parts of China. They've even set up a puppet government in what they call Manchukuo, which is Manchuria, the sort of northern part of China. Uh, They've got a puppet emperor and they've taken over a lot of portions of uh, parts of Korea and down through like the the Dutch East Indies was what that was called back then. And um, Japan is there's a couple of things about Japan that's worth mentioning. The biggest one for their war effort is they don't have and still don't have any natural resources like at all. (laughs) They don't have any oil and they don't have any rubber. And so those are two things you really need to have, particularly if you're fighting a war in the forties, like you need those things. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's what you need for planes and your ships and your tanks. It's what you need. You need lots of it all the time. And so they are going to have to figure out a way to get the um, all of this oil in order to sort of feed this war machine. And they are um, 
the United States is going to become increasingly nervous about Japan's encroachment in the Pacific area. And they're going to, the United States puts a series of sanctions and then sort of escalation uh, from that. And Japan is going to kind of calculate, they make, they're going to make a series of wartime calculations. And in the end, like this, I'm going to run through these, the calculations that they make, but only really one of these calculations actually turns to be turns out to be completely wrong. Most of them are kind of right. And I should just say, before you run through the calculations, the United States is nervous enough that this is partially why we moved the Pacific fleet to Hawaii in the Mm -hmm. first place. Previously, we'd been using sort of San Diego and that kind of just West coast of the continental United States as that big sort of naval base for the Pacific fleet. We move further out to Hawaii. We also build up our military, um, position in the Philippines. So this is, again, before um, before 1941, but through the 1940s, we're nervous enough about how aggressive Japan is being that we are putting military force in place way more than we're really concerned about what's happening in Europe. Yes. In terms of how it impacts us. Yes, we are much more nervous about um, like Japan being able to hit us like on the on our on our soil in the Pacific. The Nazis aren't coming across the Atlantic to get to us. That's not a thing. It isn't possible. Um, but we're very nervous about sort of Japan launching a sneak attack, maybe in Alaska or Hawaii or the Philippines is American territory back then. And so Japan is going to make a series of calculations. And the first thing, the first calculation, which is pretty easy, as anyone who's ever looked at a map of Japan can tell you, any war Japan gets into is going to be a naval war because they're an island nation. Islands, (laughs) lots and lots of islands. There are lots and lots of islands. Now, a naval war in the 1940s means the the first country that should come to your mind is the British because they have the world's biggest navy. However, as we mentioned earlier, the British Navy is, the British are fairly tied down (laughs) in 1941. Most of the British Navy is in the North Atlantic fighting off U-boats. They have a token force in the Pacific, uh, including the Royal Australian Navy, but the Japanese are so unconcerned about the Australian Navy that they basically don't even factor it into their calculations. That's how sort of like not impressed they are. Um, The other thing they're going to, Japan figures they can get enough resources in the Pacific, they will be close to their supply chains. Whereas if they antagonize the Americans and start a war with us, the Americans are going to be far from our supply chains. We're going to be thousands of miles away. The other thing they think is the Soviet Union is not going to be a factor. And in this, they are correct. By the November of 1941, the Soviet Union is getting pummeled. The Germans are within sight of Moscow. It looks very much like the Soviet Union is going to cease to exist as like a polity. They're going to just completely be taken over by the Nazis. Uh, and indeed, the Soviets are never a factor in the Pacific War, right up until they become a factor in like the last two or three days, literally. So the Japanese write off the Soviets. China is at that time nationalist and is basically a Japanese puppet anyway. And the only thing the Japanese are somewhat worried about is the Americans. And so this is where they are going to come up with the idea of a surprise attack. Japan has launched surprise attacks before. It has worked out well for them. They figure a surprise attack will knock the U.S. Pacific fleet out for months, which actually it does. They are correct about this. The one assumption they are incorrect about is the Japanese assume that the United States is this sort of decadent Western power and that we don't have the stones 
to uh, handle a protracted island hopping campaign in the Pacific. That we're not, we're just not there. And this is where they're going to be wrong. Very wrong. Yes, this is the one assumption they're completely wrong about. Uh, and one of their advisors, Admiral Yamamoto, tries to, like, who had studied in the United States, he tries to tell the um, sort of high command, Hideki Tojo and all that. He says, you know, the United States are not to be messed around with. Like, they're slow to get started, but once they do, like, they move in a given direction. And all the Japanese have heard is that the Americans are weak, that we're ill-prepared and that we won't because of, partly because of our democratic system, we just don't have, and we will not sustain that much loss over that long. And so all they need to do is hit us fast and hard and then drag the war out so that we'll get, um, we'll, our political wins and our desires will shift. And so that's why, where the idea comes from that we're, they're gonna attack uh, the United States. Just kind of get it over with, weaken us out of the gate, and that's going to be how it goes. The United States is going to cut off the Japanese oil supply in the summer of 1941. We are imposing sanctions for their offensive actions. We cut off the Panama Canal. We make it that back then the Panama Canal was American. We don't allow Japanese ships through the Panama Canal. We're going to activate the Philippine military. And knowing all of this is going to provoke a fight. Like FDR does this knowing that this might lead to war. But he doesn't want to continue to let Japan's aggression like just continue to happen without some American response. Let's just just to kind of state how obvious this is. There was a Gallup poll that was taken in October of 1941. 52% of Americans expected we would go to war with Japan before the end of the year. So this is a couple months before Pearl Harbor happens. But I think and this is not to take away from the element of surprise. There is certainly an element of surprise. But if you were an American in late 1941 and you had paid any attention to what was going on, looked at a newsreel, listened to the radio, looked at newspapers, and certainly if you were operating at any level of the U.S. government, there was no doubt that war with Japan was imminent. Yes. Our, our inclusion into the war in Europe was maybe a little bit more of an open question, but it's clear because you can see what Japan's doing, the buildup, the training, the preparation. Yes. Even though it's happening halfway across the world, that intelligence and information is, is common and, and out there. And so there was a, a strong sense that we were going to go to war at some point with Japan. Yes. And you get, you sort of see like the ramp up of the America firsters too. They get more and more ramped up with this too, because they start yelling and screaming about how we're being pushed into this war and we don't want to be in this war. And so all of this stuff is kind of roiling around uh, in the fall of uh, 1941. We have these sanctions against the Japanese and uh, they are, uh, all, the Japanese are going to take all of these sanctions as a sign that war is inevitable. And so might as well start it on their terms rather than ours. And so that's what Japan is going to um, uh, start with. And there is a controversy, sort of the big Pearl Harbor controversy is, does FDR know that, this, that the attack is coming and just lets it happen? And the answer to that is mostly no. I mean, I think that he assumed there was an attack, but Obviously, any president of the United States knowing that there is, if he had had intelligence that it was coming when it was coming, he would have moved Americans out of harm's way. Like, I don't think he knew that December 7th was the day. I don't think he knew it was coming in Hawaii. 
he the high command actually thought that it was coming in the Philippines. That would have been the most logical place for Japan to do it. It's closer, it's easier, it's less strategically important to US interests than Hawaii. And so FDR, I think the military, I think the, the best way to, to describe this is FDR knew an attack was coming. He didn't know when and he didn't know where. And I think that that's kind of where. Although we, we can tell based on some of the actions that are taken towards the end of 1941 that they thought the Philippines was more likely. They put the base in the Philippines mm-hmm. on a higher alert than they do with our, our um, bases and people stationed in Hawaii. Um, they, they start mounting up in the Philippines. They actually start preparing for this sort of inevitability. So again, I think you absolutely hit it on the nail. He, he does not know that we're going to be attacked on December 7th at Pearl Harbor any president receiving the military intelligence he's getting knows that Japan is ramping up to attack us somewhere and they're just trying to guess where and when. Yes. So the actual attack um, in May of 1941, US are going to send four battleships to Europe. So that's, and a battleship is a a group of ships. It's not just one. They are going to send a bunch around to sort of support uh, what's going on in Europe. And so Japan wants to deliver a fatal blow to the Pacific fleet that remains. They Again, Japan has done a sneak attack. They did one against the Russians in 1905, and it worked so well it ended the war. So Japan is used to this kind of sneak attack. That's kind of where they decide in their head that's where they're going to do. And they decide on Hawaii in partly because the U.S., they know the U.S. expects it in the Philippines. And so it gives them an additional, an additional element of surprise. They're going to make the decision at the end of November to attack. They decide that time is of the essence for this attack. Winter is coming and winter is cold and not ideal for fighting. And then monsoon season comes after right after that, which is also not ideal for a naval war. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it turns out. Nobody wants to be fighting in monsoon season. No, no, I don't know. I can't imagine that would be any way. And anyway, that doesn't benefit anybody. Nobody gets the upper hand in that kind of scenario. Nope. Um, They are, and they are in the Pacific already. They're consuming resources just by being there. And so let's get this party started. There is a full moon on December 6th, which is what's going to ultimately propel the choice of date, as well as the fact that December 7th was a Sunday. And so the Japanese know, and this is actually kind of smart of them, Japanese know that Sundays are kind of a day off. People, particularly on a Sunday morning, this is still the 40s, people are in church. There's a skeleton crew at the naval base, which is exactly what happens as it turns out. Like they hit hard early in the morning, people are either not there or they're on their way to church. And so they're going to, it's a very skeleton crew that Japan is going to uh, encounter when they get to Pearl Harbor. So the full moon and the fact that it's Sunday just kind of coalesces and that, so they've decided it's going to be uh, December 7th. Uh, There are 30 Japanese ships in total, six carriers with 423 planes, two battleships, destroyers, cruisers. The, there are a couple of obstacles that they have to work through. One of them was, and this actually fascinated me when I read about it. One of the obstacles for Japan is that actually, as it turns out, the um, Pearl Harbor, the actual body of water there the, um, is shallow, relatively shallow. And so the torpedoes would be useless uh, because they're sort of deep sea torpedoes. And so they had to modify them in order to uh, modify their torpedoes in order to hit the American ships because apparently uh, the bay there is uh, particularly shallow. 
And also Americans are gonna double more ships. So we more, more ships close uh, next to each other at the time, which offers them uh, an element of protection. And so this is why they're gonna use these high altitude ship, uh, these high altitude bombers to sort of penetrate these ships. Uh, and that's why there's a, a lot of this is um, these sort of jet what are called the Japanese zeros uh, that are gonna sort of dive bomb a lot of these uh, ships in Pearl Harbor. They are, the Japanese carrier group is 220 miles northwest of Oahu. And they're gonna launch starting at six in the morning, which sounds early. And the Japanese Zeros launch first, then their torpedo bombers, and then their horizontal bombers. And by the way, if you ever want to see a Japanese Zero, they have one at the uh, Air and Space Museum in the normal times when it's open. Uh, it, is, uh, it is the exact same type of plane that would have bombed Pearl Harbor. The, they, are, they get to, and it is a true surprise attack at 7.53 a.m. The um, Japanese ye uh, begin yelling Tora, 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 which is attack, and the attack begins. There are eight U.S. battleships, including the Arizona and the Oklahoma, both of which are going to get destroyed. The Oklahoma is sink first and is, uh, and very quickly. Uh, there are alarms begun being blazing across the harbor as men are going to sort of scramble to get ready. By 8.15, so not even 20 minutes later, the Japanese have knocked out, uh, planes have knocked out communication. They have knocked out several of the smaller ships and the destroyers. The Arizona, which is the most famous ship, is going to get struck in its magazine. So basically they, sh they hit by sort of a miracle, the Japanese hit the ammo uh, on the ship and it ignites. And so the Arizona is going to blow up the whole ship. Over a thousand Americans die right there on the Arizona. And the Arizona is still in Pearl Harbor. It is still there. It forms the basis of the sort of Pearl Harbor um, memorial. Fighters are then going to spread out all across the island of Oahu, taking out aircraft and barracks. They're going to kill, um, bomb several barracks and airplanes and sort of uh, hit them uh, at Air Force Base and then another sort of uh, hangar where there are planes. The second wave is going to arrive around nine o'clock, 167 aircraft. They add to this destruction, but don't sink any new ships. In all, four battleships are damaged, four are sunk. Uh, three cruisers and destro three destroyers each are damaged. 188 aircraft are destroyed. 2,300 men are killed, 1,100 wounded. 65 civilians killed and 35 wounded. That's Americans. The Jap Japanese are gonna lose 29 planes and 64 men die. That's it. This is an overwhelming success for Japan. It is hard to overestimate, like they, we lose thousands as opposed to they lose not even 65 men. This is- a And when it success. comes to resources, I mean, material loss, right? This mm -hmm. is a huge blow. And the Japanese managed to get out with only losing a handful of aircraft comparatively, truly. Mm -hmm. um, it plays out exactly the way the Japanese want. They would have sacrificed more. Mm -hmm. They would have sacrificed more aircraft and more men, but they come out of this, the exact position they want to be in. Yes. They're also going to attack the Philippines too. This is sort of the under the, uh, they actually do attack the Philippines. We had worried they would, and they do on the same day. So the Philippines is going to take a significant amount of damage and they try to basically punch a hole in the entire Pacific fleet 
uh, and they do. They hit us in the two main places where the United States has significant uh, battleships and cruisers in those days. Um, the, the, however, they are they don't just uh, destroy the naval dockyards. They and at Pearl Harbor, the carrier group remains afloat, and so they don't destroy um, as much as many of the resources as they wanted to. Uh, and even despite this, though, they didn't get to all of their objectives, but it remains a massive Japanese victory. It is uh, overwhelming, and they have done exactly what they wanted, which is basically punch the United States and stagger us backwards. And so it will take months for the United States to recover from this, just exactly what the Japanese had hoped it would. Uh, this They don't quite get as much of um, the of the sort of, it's not quite the knockout blow that they'd hoped it would be, but it's it's pretty close and it does significant damage. And the Roosevelt is hearing about this sort of in real, pretty much in real time, 7.30 or eight o'clock uh, in Hawaii is about two o'clock in the afternoon, um, uh, Eastern time. And so Roosevelt is sort of hearing about this as it's happening and is, uh, and this is one of my favorite things about this. Roosevelt will take a beat before he speaks to the country. He takes a day, he talks to his commanders, he assesses the damage on the ground. He does not immediately go crazy, ask for radio time and declare war that day. First of all, he knows that he does not have the ability to do so. He is gonna take a beat. And I, I really think um, that this is kind of important you know, because there every December 7th, you'll see some politician or other will talk about how this is the day that Roosevelt declared war. It is not Roosevelt. And I think there's something really important about a commander in chief who takes a beat before he's going to make decisions that will literally affect the lives of millions of people. He goes to Congress the next day on December 8th uh, and he asks for a declaration of war. And he gives that very famous speech that I'm sure you've heard excerpts of that this is the, the day of infamy speech. Like this is, that's literally the speech that he gives. Um, and and Congress is, will oblige his request within the hour. So this declaration of war comes pretty immediately after Roosevelt gives that famous speech. Because yes. this has also given everybody in Congress time to go, all right, this is okay. what we're going to do. We're going to vote. So there's no grandstanding. There's no, this is, the president lays out what happened and why we need to go to war. Congress can vote. And we're a united front coming out of this. Yes. And that's why he goes personally and asks, like, this is, he can't declare war on his own. The constitution actually does not give him that power. Uh, and he needs Congress to declare war. And he wants the world to know that with one voice, we have declared war. And this is all, it takes a, a day to do that. Now, however, I will mention, it is not a unanimous vote to go to war. There actually is one abstainer in Congress. And you know who that is, Becca? I do. It's <laughs> Jeanette Rankin who had been the first woman elected to Congress. And she was a pacifist, um, deeply in her core, truly a pacifist. And she had voted previously against American entry into the First World War. She was not the only one. There were several people who voted against the declaration of war in the First World War. Um, she had found herself returning to Congress later, fatefully in 1941. There she is again, having to make this decision of whether to go to war. And she will again uh, vote against our entrance into the Second World War because of her pacifist beliefs, but also uh, truly believing that she could not send, you know, send men off to fight a war that she could not also go and fight in, right? There had to be this sense of, um, if we're going to send, you know, how can I determine who goes to live or die? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Jeanette Rankin would be the only, the only 
uh, Congress member to vote against American entry into yes. the Second World War. And imagine that must have been a gutsy vote. It's a gutsy vote because this is, uh, it's, first of all, she's out on her own on this. With the First World War, there were other members of Congress who opposed our entry. Here, it's, you know, members of Congress have had time to draw their ranks and kind of all come in and say, we're going to be on the same page with this. We have to come out strong. She just really, and she knows, she knows it will cost her her next election. She knows it's not going to be popular, but she has her ideals and her values. And I really respect that about her. She would later go on and protest America involvement in Vietnam. Um, She really maintains that belief and support for pacifism her entire life, but it could not have been you know, hours after thousands of people have lost their lives Mm -hmm. to say, I vote against going to war is not an easy thing to do. Right. With the Arizona still smoking and there's still, you know, the bomb damage being assessed and the casualty list not yet complete, you know, she's going to get up and be the only no vote. Like that must've taken guts and it does cost her her next election. It ends her political career and she knows it will, um, which I think is just super uh, fascinating. And then the question becomes, well, we're in the war with Japan, what about Europe? And this is where uh, Hitler makes his second biggest blunder, which is uh, on December 11th, he is going to declare war on the United States. He is going to acknowledge his treaty obligations to Japan and because really he just wanted to fight the United States too. He thought he could take us all and win and he was very wrong. Uh, and so Hitler will declare war on the United States uh, two days after or three days after um, the United States declares war on Japan. Uh, and so suddenly we have gone from uh, a state of complete peace, more or less, to we're now fighting a two front war. And Churchill will immediately be the only person in the world who is thrilled about this. Churchill is thrilled. He's wants he I'm needs sorry. some help. <laughs> Not he thrilled. really is thrilled. the only person who's really thrilled. <laughs> he really, a thrill is the wrong characterization. That no. isn't, that's not fair. But he is very happy to have the assistance. And he will immediately, like within a week, get on a plane secretly and fly to Washington and spend three weeks, including Christmas and New Year's, in the White House with Franklin Roosevelt, hammering out how they're going to go about fighting this war. So this is, that's the, and this is also for us in Washington, by the way, this is the moment at which the White House becomes completely secure. The White House had had, like, you could walk onto the grounds at various points. They had gates that were open at sometimes. After Pearl Harbor, the Secret Service basically shuts the White House down and it becomes a fully secure compound uh, that you need a pass and an entry for. So that uh, the security, complete security around the White House actually stems from post Pearl Harbor. So a, a couple things I, I want to mention here is that this is overwhelmingly right. It goes the way the Japanese want very much. So uh, they mm-hmm. come out of this feeling as though they have hit their objectives for the most part. However, um, they when they hit Pearl Harbor, they're very strategic in what they hit and they neglected to hit a few places. They mm-hmm. skipped over our Navy repair yards, our oil tank farms, which probably would have been a smart thing to take out our submarine base and the old headquarters building. They basically omitted those places thinking that they wouldn't be as important as the aircraft carriers and the the larger battleships. However, when it comes to us bouncing back from this or us sort of um, moving forward after the Pearl Harbor attack, those places come become immediately important. We are going to utilize submarines pretty much immediately to immobilize the Japanese Navy ships. Um, That's going to be a huge impact on the 
Japanese economy in 1942. Um, we are going to do this to really just cripple their importation of oil and resources, which is what they need. So by not taking out the submarine base, this is going to come back and bite Japan the next year um, because that's what we're going to be utilizing. We're also going to be able to turn a lot of these um, repair buildings to we're going to use a lot of these repair buildings to turn around and do the repairs that need to be done. And within six months, we've actually repaired quite a number of carriers. Now, those six months, that's still an important amount of time we lose. But I think it's an incredible nod to the, um, uh, the Americans' will for this mm -hmm. war that we got to work and we repaired things. We also use the old headquarters building to turn into our crypto analytic unit, which would become hugely important mm -hmm. for the Battle of Midway uh, and for several subsequent uh, invasions and fights in the Pacific theater. So by not taking out those places, we basically go, okay, this is what we've got. This is what we're going to use because that's what America does. Um, we're exceptionally good when our back's against the wall. Mm -hmm. And so we reassess and in the Pacific theater, particularly, they go, okay, we don't have aircraft carriers. We have submarines. Let's use those. And that's what we do, um, particularly in 1942. I also do want to mention that um, there are incredible acts of bravery at Pearl Harbor. And it would almost be, I think, another episode to really detail some of the incredible individuals that day. But I, I want to just list out what's awarded simply for the single day of combat, as mm -hmm. it were, in Pearl Harbor. We will award 15 medals of honor, 51 Navy crosses, 53 silver stars, four Navy and Marine Corps medals, one distinguished flying cross, four distinguished service crosses, one distinguished service medal, and three bronze star medals. This is for an event that takes all of what, three hours? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think that speaks to how quickly and bravely those that were there jumped into action, worked to save lives um, and worked to fight back. Um, so as much as it, it, is, it is important to note that this is a blow to us, um, there's also just incredible acts of bravery that day and incredible acts of, of service. Um, particularly those who work to try to keep that casualty count down, yes. um, doctors, nurses, those that are trying to get people off of these burning ships. Um, it's just really, um, and it's mind blowing because it all happens so fast and it's over so quickly. Yes, truly. it's just very fast. And it's not, it's it also the Japanese do exactly what they thought could not be done, which is harden the U.S. resolve. Suddenly, the United States goes from being very uninterested in this war and sort of thinking that, oh, well, it's somebody else's problem to being absolutely resolute. And all the America Firsters, and it must be said, a lot of the America Firsters are going to go all in for this war, too. Um, even Lindbergh wants to sign up and fight. But it, this is going to silence all of that uh, criticism that Roosevelt should keep us out of this war, that Roosevelt's pushing for this. The United States is as united as perhaps we have ever been uh, to fighting this war. Um, and it really does, the, the Pearl Harbor, the fact that they attacked us on our soil, like on just, a Sunday, on a on the like, Lord's Day, right? It galvanizes Americans more. And there is, it must be said, no small amount of racism in the way that we talk about Japan. That is a very real thing that happens. And we are going to put Japanese Americans in camps. Uh, that's how angry we are. Um, and it's, I think in terms though, of, of, if you could think of one thing that could drum up a just insane amount of pro-war propaganda, it's this. Yes. Um, I don't think the Japanese count on how 
successful this is going to be for mm-hmm. pro for propaganda yes. and like you said it hardens our resolve immediately you know we go from a country very divided about the idea of entering this war to overwhelmingly americans saying we absolutely need to put the full face uh, the full weight of American forces on the ground against Japan immediately. And I don't think they counted on that, like you said earlier. Um, and I think it's a good point, this idea that we're soft, that we're too divided, that we have too many factions and we're not going to be able to come together on this. Pearl Harbor is about the one thing that could bring us all together. Right. And they, they gave it to us. So there's an unintended consequence there for Japan. Yes, very much. Very, very much. Wow, that was fun. And so, yeah, that's that's going to bring us into the war. And that's the sort of, and it's really the way to liken it is to our response to 9-11. And there's a lot of like problems with that analogy, but I feel like the idea that the United States comes together and is angry and, and, and sad and scarred. And the other thing that I would like to mention, and I talk about this, there's a, at the National Archives, a guy who sends a telegram to Roosevelt and he's from Connecticut. And he sends this telegram and he talks about how Roosevelt, he heard Roosevelt's speech on the radio that night. He says, thank you very much. It cheered me up. I had just found out that day that I lost my boy at Pearl Harbor. And the thing is, the telegram was sent on February 23rd, 1942. So it takes two and a half months to let for the War Department to sort through all of this and to send out these telegrams and to let people know what's happening. And so this wound is raw for a long time. There is a lot of people who are really upset about this for a long time after this. This is this goes on for quite the while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a few things. Um, while we don't explicitly have like a Pearl Harbor Memorial in Washington, D.C., there's a great depth of Pearl Harbor history at Arlington National Cemetery. The Pentagon yes. about five years ago actually did a pretty in-depth bit of research to try to identify survivors of the Pearl Harbor attack, those that were bare or those that were killed at Pearl Harbor and are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Um, they've tried to identify those uh, that are sort of connected to. So there's some great resources at Arlington National Cemetery, and there's quite a few uh, individual grave markers and a few smaller scale memorials that acknowledge specific um, ships and events and people that day. Um, so there is that. There is also a battleship um, up in the inner harbor of Baltimore. Um, where you can go and actually see it is the it's a Coast Guard cutter, the yeah. Tanny, which is currently at uh, the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. So that's not quite DC, but it's not too far. Um, but if you want to see the Tanny, the Tanny was there at mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor. I talk about a Pearl Harbor event on almost every tour of the World War II memorial that I ever give. There's a, a story that I like to tell, and I'm not going to tell it now because you got to come on my tour. But um, it's yeah, that's this this is sort of foundational for the war effort, and everything sort of kind of flows. And it, the 80th anniversary is um, it's going to be a thing, I think. Um, it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, and so absolutely, um, we'll put in the show notes uh, everything that uh, the Park Service and the U.S. government is planning for the 80th anniversary. I have never been to Hawaii. I've done the Continental 48, but I've never been to Hawaii or Alaska, and it's super high on my list, not the least of which is to go and see the Arizona and go to Pearl Harbor and see where that took place. You know, it's funny. I have almost no desire to go to Hawaii except to see Pearl Harbor. Like, that's the only reason I really want to go. Like, it doesn't do it for me, like... 
I don't know, it just seems really hot. And I'm not into like particularly hot weather <laughs> with nothing to do. Um, but like Pearl Harbor, I want to see. So eventually I will go just because I want to go to Pearl Harbor that badly. Um, so my fun fact about the Arizona is that it, um, there are still, it still leaches oil all the time. There's still, they call it the tears from the Arizona. It's still oil bubbles to the surface uh, from the Hulk of the Arizona, which has been down in Pearl Harbor for 80 years. There's still oil coming to the surface, which is kind of haunting and sad and amazing all at the same time. Um, and as always, I feel like when we talk about an event like this, we should talk about Pearl Harbor and pop culture. This is by far like one of the most represented events in film and TV. There's a very big movie from 2001 that is terrible, but I saw it in the theater because <laughs> I was, you know, a high school junior. So sure. why not? Um, you know, it's not a great movie. However, there have I've been some really it. good movies about Pearl Harbor made. Uh, I always like to point out there's it's it is a film. Um, it's December 7th, the movie. It's directed by John Ford. Um, he Ford was a famous Hollywood director, and he actually, like several other Hollywood directors of the era, worked for the Department of Defense, worked for individual um, pieces of uh, our armed forces to create films. A lot of people think it's a documentary. That's how accurate and well done the footage is. In terms of the timeline of the attack and stuff, it's not accurate. There's a lot that's sort of fictionalized and moved. But if you want to get a visual of what this must have looked like, John Ford's December 7th, the movie is is really exceptional. It's used frequently in documentaries today. Um, so it's not a documentary, but it really recreates much of what that looked like and would have looked like on the ground. So I always like to shout that out. One of my favorites uh, is actually From Here to Eternity, um, which is set in the days or the day and night sort of leading up to the attack. And it is a romance, um, but also I think really touches on a lot of what we have sort of talked on here, which is the sense of, of Americans know something's coming. They don't know when it's coming. There's that sense of tension and anxiety. And then when it does come, what is that going to mean? We're about to be launched into this global war again. And I think From Here to Eternity does a beautiful job of sort of touching on this mental space and emotional space of knowing that we're on the brink of another global war. And, you know, there were plenty of people alive in 1941 who remembered the last global war. Mm -hmm. So there is a melancholy about it. And then I'll mention Tora, 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 1970. I think Tora, Tora, Tora is the best movie about the attack on Pearl Harbor that's been made. This was actually done with the United States and Japanese. It was a co-production. So um, it has input from both sides. It is meticulous in its historical detail. Mm. It is very, very well done. Um, if you really want to understand it from both sides, if you want to have a good sense of how this attack rolled out, it's also just a really great movie. Um, but Tor Tor Tora is to me the high standard. I will, however, also mention a TV movie called Winds of War because I talk about the man who wrote the book, Winds of War, on my Georgetown tour. His name is Herman Woke. Um, he was a longtime author, very uh, successful Pulitzer Prize winning author, um, who was a World War II veteran, a Jewish American who fought in World War II from the Bronx. Uh, but he keeps the Georgetown home for a good chunk of his life. And he wrote several books about the war, uh, including The Cane Mutiny, Marjorie Morningstar, uh, Winds of War, and War of Remembrance are kind of the big ones. But they did a great TV uh, miniseries in the 1980s based on the Winds of War. 
And it's got a Robert Mitchum in him, a Robert nice. Mitchum's in it and a few other people, but that has a nice little Georgetown connection. So um, you can find it out there streaming a few places, um, but it is like a 1980s TV movie. So not the same as like a feature film by any means. I've never seen the big Pearl Harbor, the like big blaster, blockbuster with Ben Affleck. I refused. Oh my I God. I actually, refused. I would love for Christmas for you to gift me the gift of getting you drunk and watching the Pearl Harbor oh with God. Ben Affleck. I actually can't I can't do it just like the idea like Ben Affleck saving the world like on this sacred day like just bothers me so much it is not a good movie it is heavily fictionalized there are a few little elements of it I like um but no it's mostly terrible (laughs) it's mostly really not great yeah yeah no um yeah, shout out to to Michael Bay for making a not oh, good no, movie no. about Pearl Harbor. <laughs> um, so yeah, I can't really I can't really defend it. Go watch Tora Tora Tora. Go watch From Here to Eternity, um, and and any number of it. This is an event that's well represented in our pop culture sure. and in fiction and and um, alternate fiction for sure um, as well. If you like reading that kind of thing. So this was really honestly just a taste of Pearl Harbor. Like we said, we could have gone a little more in depth. We would need another episode to do it, but to really talk about some of the individuals mm-hmm. and some of the, uh, the t- you know, minute by minute things that are going down on the ship. So maybe in the future we do another episode. Um, and I could see us using this as a launching off point to do a series of World War II episodes where we really break down some key moments um, because oh, there's yeah. a lot here that we're touching on. You mean World War II is complicated? It's complicated Wait, and it goes on uh, four long years. <laughs> uh, people I would love to do that. that. I would, I'd love people to know that. I'd love to talk more about the Pacific War because that's not like something I, I mean, I know some about, but not enough. And so I feel like that would be fun. We should do some. Um, but World War II is, uh, you know, there's whole podcast just on World War II. So, so it's a lot. Um, but yeah, we should, we've touched on a lot and there is a lot of heroism and a lot of bravery that is the, these are justifiably the best that America has to offer. Um, fighting at Pearl Harbor really is true. And thanks guys for coming along with us. This was fun. Thank you for coming along. Um, Next episode will be a little bit more in the holiday spirit. We'll talk about a historic spot in DC that we love that also is beautiful to visit during uh, the Christmas time. So we'll do sort of a little holiday themed episode. Um, We'll also have some, some special stuff coming to our patrons before the end of the year. If you are listening to this episode, um, we are also just um, around the same time that this episode is going to drop doing a special live interview with our good friends at a tour of her own. Um, We are going to have Miss Rebecca interview myself and my colleague, Caitlin Calagera, um, on the book that we wrote, 111 Places in Women's History in Washington, D.C., that you must not miss. Um, We've been wanting to do kind of a live episode where people can watch us record live and send questions in the chat. So um, if you want to do that, you can sign up. If you are a patron, pay attention to your patron messages because you get to attend this for free. Uh, We have a special code that will not only get you free entry to this event on December 7th, but also um, free entry to any of Toho's events in December. So if you're a patron, you're getting free access to four events in December. Um, So be sure to check your patron messages. If you're not a patron, um, check the show notes. We'll have a link uh, for this live book interview with uh, with a tour of her own. The cool thing is if you can't attend live, don't worry about it. You buy a ticket, you still get a recording. So that's going to be it. And we'll drop it as an episode as well, an audio episode at some point. 
Yay. And it's going to be really good. I'm excited to interview about this amazing book. So uh, that's actually going to happen on December 7th. So stay tuned for that. We're going to talk about the uh, some a holiday episode. And there's going to be a, a brief appearance of one of our favoritest podcast topics uh, in our next episode. So stay yes. tuned for that. Very exciting. And then January, we've got some good stuff too. We're planning a good January. So um, thanks guys for coming along with us and uh, enjoy your holiday season. And we'll be back in your ear holes at some point in a couple of days. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.